Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Renter Power Hour. My name is Eduardo Torres. I'm the Northern California Regional Coordinator with Tennis Together, and today I'm joined with Amy Inglis, Program Director. And this is Eileen Joy, and we're Development Director here at Tenants Together. We have a really packed show for you today, and we're really excited about it. We are going to be talking to Leah Simon Weisberg, who is a Tenants Together alumni um, and currently is Legal Director with Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, who many of us know as ACE. Um, she's also currently attorney with Moms for Housing, um, and Moms for Housing just had a really amazing win, um, and we're all so excited to talk about that today, so excited yes. about what they're doing. Yes. 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 Moms for Housing. Go Moms for Housing. Yes. Down with all the haters. <laughs> for sure. Um, we're also going to do a report back on our Tenant Lawyer Network conference. Mm-hmm. This year we were at UCLA. We switch back and forth every year. Mm-hmm. Berkeley or LA, um, trying to mix it up, Northern California, Southern California. And this year is one of our biggest years ever. So mm-hmm. it's pretty exciting. So let's go ahead and kick it off with this interview with Leah Simon Weinsberg. She was very gracious enough to make some time and give us a little bit of a glimpse of what happened with the Monster Housing action that took place uh, and got all sorts of attention nationwide. <laughs> that we have Leah Simon Weisberg here in the office, who is the legal director for ACE and was the attorney for Moms for Housing to talk about the Moms for Housing work. Um, Thank you, Leah, for coming in the office. Yeah, it's happy to be back. (laughs) So anyone who's listening to this podcast probably knows what Moms for Housing is, but just in case you don't, um, I am going to read a couple of things. First off, uh, interestingly, from uh, Vice, they have been given the title of Icons of the Homelessness Crisis. And, uh, and Vice, in an article about Moms for Housing, uh, summarized their work as old school direct action with the idea that in order to change the law, you first must break it. Uh, and what they did was they occupied a home owned by Wedgwood, a major uh, corporate real estate entity, uh, and that home was being left vacant for years. And these are moms uh, who were homeless and needed a home for themselves and their children, and they occupied that home. And so this was a very exciting direct action that inspired hundreds of people to come out and support, uh, has inspired uh, legislation, at least at the local level, for a tenant opportunity to purchase act, and uh, even current negotiations with Wedgwood to sell the home to the moms um, through Oakland Community Land Trust. So this is a big deal and something folks all over the state, all over the world have been really inspired by. And so um, we wanted to have more of a discussion about it. So thank you, Leah, for joining. First off, it would be great if you could talk about um, your role in support of the moms and also just general perspective on the role of legal services, attorneys in support of the movement. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, a lot of folks will talk about uh, movement lawyering or community lawyering. You know, I think in many ways the National Lawyers Guild really created and, you know, I think has continued to train lawyers and what this means. And I think a lot of it is to kind of get the obstacles out and away 
from the community to be able to, you know, bring change, fight for change. And, you know, some of it can be feel really awkward because it can be very different than what some of the more traditional training um, that lawyers will get uh, just generally in the field. But a lot of it is, you know, first off, that lawyers don't need to be leading the movement, but that we are there to support and in some ways hold difficult moments so that the movement can keep pushing. And in some ways, it's also to protect um, the folks in the movement. Often lawyers, um, whether it's because of the privilege we bring before we go to law school or the privilege we obtain by going to law school, can be we're a little bit safer um, in that police are a little bit less likely to arrest us, um, a little bit less likely to dismiss us. And we can be a witness, I think, in the tradition of, you know, Quakers, where, you know, just enough people being there um, will bring protection to folks who are more vulnerable. And I think I just, I want to talk a little bit about if, you know, that when it comes to eviction defense, I mean, the roots of eviction defense, you know, is about resisting being people being forced out of their homes. And there's been, you know, lots of times in history where that's happened, whether it was the Irish um, when they were being thrown off their land or all the way to the Great Depression um, here in the United States where people um, would resist, you know, evictions um, that often were because of foreclosure or people who were just working the land. Um, and but, you know, the amount that they would get from their fields wouldn't be enough for, you know, what they would be paying. Um, or coal miners who uh, would go on strike and would be kicked out of their their housing and, and resisting that. So I think that there is a huge tradition in that, you know, so I think that even though we see it now as a prevention for, you know, homelessness and, you know, all of the due process rights, the role of the attorney often when you have a situation where, again, the law may not be um, up to date, that it, it there may be such huge loopholes that, you know, speculators and corporate owners are taking advantage of that, you know, sometimes th- the organizing is the only way of getting there. And, you know, I think it's important, first off, that the community, the folks impacted, the organizers are the ones leading the strategy and the um, attorneys are there to kind of bolster and support and sometimes come up with legal strategies to give more time, to get into court, to change the law. You know, it's a lot of technical support, but I, I really want to go back to this. It's important to be able to hold a case. And I've found that that can be the scariest for attorneys, particularly new legal service service attorneys, because once you've never done it, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, will those tenants get evicted? Um, but I think that this story more than any other will sh- shows that the lawyers can not necessarily win at each stage, but it gives the organizing more space to organize and that there the victory ends up happening and, and that that's just an important role. For those who really like to nerd out on this stuff, and there are a number of those who listen who are are very nerdy like ourselves, can you talk a little bit more about the legal strategy, uh, you know, starting from why it seemed important to take this case, um, thinking through the legal strategy and, you know, how that showed up um, in court? Like, what were the different steps along the way? Well, um you know, as a staff person for ACE, and they were very much involved in helping the organizing, it was another tool that was, you know, was brought to support this campaign. And, you know, if you essentially occupy a house, there's going to be at some point, the owners are going to try and evict you. And so I think that 
I had assumed that we would be doing a detainer action, which is when you never had permission from the onset, which are much longer proceedings. So I thought that that's what I was preparing for. And then ironically, um, Wedgwood, which is one of the you know, was one of the worst violators of tenant protections during the foreclosure crisis, of course, was using those same games and had um, an eviction pending from months and months before that they hadn't finished. And so what they did is just reenacted that old eviction. And ironically, again, um, a protection we had put in because of Wedgwood, because of their consistent... um, strategy of naming the owners that they knew um, were not living there instead would try and evict people, um, you know, and, and tenants particularly who were living there and would put in a fake name or, and or the landlord's name and who they knew, again, that wasn't there, which you're not supposed to do. And so um, the advocates changed the law so that um, we could file claim of right to possession at any time, because normally you only had two weeks to do it, essentially. And so tenants would get locked out of their rent-controlled units that they'd been there for years without even a trial. So uh, it was kind of this weird thing of um, kind of karma on Wedgwood that we were able to use a strategy that was created for them um, to address their abuses. And so, you know, we are going to file a claim of right to possession. And I think the real question was, what was our basis going to be? Because normally you have to show that you are a tenant based on having a rental agreement. And instead we were, you know, this was a movement saying we can't have speculating corporations, you know, commodifying housing and then family, you know, thousands and thousands of families as a result are are rendered homeless. And so, you know, we'd all been talking about for years this right to housing and the claim of right to possession was just seemed to kind of it, it, it just invited us really talking about the right to housing, because essentially that is what it is. And I think that there's this tension between this right to pro- um, property that Americans think is part of our Constitution and think is part of our culture. And it's so ironic since we stole this whole country from the Native Americans who absolutely do not you know, absolutely reject that and instead, you know, have a real sense of that Mother Earth is for everybody and nobody can own it. And so, you know, I think we started developing that idea and then we started researching it. And the the argument, the legal argument that was made was um, that we actually still do have a right to housing, um, that while the feds had curtailed it to some extent, we still had enough of it there. We still have an international right to housing. There is a but. Uh, and then, now this is the really nerdy part. So um, the reason that your landlord can't evict you if you live in really deplorable, uninhabitable, untenable conditions is because of a case called Green versus Superior Court. And this was a uh, became eventually a Supreme Court case in California that said for the first time, look, landlord, you don't get to evict somebody if you haven't maintained the property and that these two promises interact. So the tenant doesn't have to promise to pay rent if you aren't promising to provide a habitable property. And so that came to be called an implied warranty of habitability to be found in the in the contract so that means in our case law the courts created case law that said there's an implied warranty of habitability and so if the landlord doesn't do that 
then the tenant doesn't have to pay rent. And so you can't kick somebody out because they don't owe you the rent because you, the landlord failed to do it. So why that case was important and why we were able to rely on it, um, at least in the legal argument, was not because there was a habitability issue here. The issue is that that case was based on another case that said when the court um, deter- does a needs assessment and has determined that the conditions in society um, demand it, that they can find, they can basically evolve and need, need to intervene and find, and, and that the case law has to reflect that. And that's really what Green versus Superior Court was about because in the 70s, there are, the conditions of our housing was deplorable. And, and so that's what the court did a needs assessment and was able to do. So what we tried to argue was that um, the court needed to do a needs assessment. And based on that needs assessment, we believed that there's such a sufficient housing crisis to call for the court to intervene and say, we're not kicking people out when there's nowhere for them to stay, which, you know, is very parallel to you can't criminalize somebody sitting on the sidewalk if um, there's nowhere for them to go. Well, you shouldn't kick them out of empty units if there's nowhere to go. Thank you so much for digging into that. And uh, you also touched a little bit around uh, the history of land and housing in the U.S. And also, you know, I know that you're knowledgeable about your tenants' rights history. Uh, And so I wanted to ask if you could share some perspective on the long history of taking back land and housing for the people in the tenants' rights movement. And how does Moms for Housing fit in with that history? How does it not? How are they different? You know, just some some reflection on that. Well, I I think I would actually have to go to Europe to kind of reach back to some really great examples. I mean, there are examples in history about, you know, taking the land back from people who stole it from the beginning, whether it's, you know, in Southern, in, in Latin America, where you had just huge land grabs by, you know, colonizers. And then, you know, once the colonies were over, um, when land was redistributed. I mean, obviously that doesn't address, you know, the indigenous community that were robbed of their um, homes before that. Um, but there's a long history of people fighting back and saying, you just can't take this because obviously land has been, you know, stolen from people since the beginning of time. But I think that the the tradition, you know, of, you know, in the 60s and 70s, again, there was a, you know, and, and much of this had to do with World War II and just huge vats of continents having been destroyed, whether it was, you know, Japan <laughs> and having two cities um, flattened by nuclear weapons to, you know, the world had just finished having a war. And there were lots of places where there just wasn't enough housing and it wasn't being built fast enough and the government wasn't being active enough. And in Europe, the Netherlands is a great example where um, people were just like, we have nowhere to be. And they started taking over buildings. And those now kind of make up kind of their community controlled housing. And it's why more than, you know, more than half of their housing is community controlled out of the speculative market, not for profit. Um, and so that's why their housing is more stable. Um, but that also happened in San Francisco in the 80s where people took over apartment buildings and we still have those cooperatives. Um, I think it's the Purple Rose, if that's the right um, I'm remembering correctly. Uh, and in San Francisco, we have a great um, limited equity co-op 
uh, on 10th Street and another one on Parker Street that came out of rent strikes in the 70s um, where, you know, there are just lots of landlords who just would rent out slum housing to, to students who didn't know what else to do. And they wouldn't make repairs. And students, there was a huge rent strike in Berkeley, the great Berkeley rent strike. And there was a great um, rental strike in San Francisco that actually John Burton was involved with here in San Francisco. And many of those buildings became part of, became co-ops. So it's it's not even, you know, there's some around the corner. Um, some of the most famous ones are in other countries. Um, but and in, in New York also, um, when people abandoned the inner cores of a lot of urban cities, people took over buildings and demanded that you know, the government intervene. And I think that, you know, how does Moms for Housing connect to this? It, it's about saying, you know, just like screaming really loud, like this is just unacceptable. It has gotten so bad and you haven't been doing anything to address the crisis. And those of us who've been doing housing, you know, for two decades have been saying you have, you cannot allow the commodification of housing. And first it was the foreclosure crisis where there was this huge amount of commodification. Then coming out of that was the um, you know, now the new commodification of, you know, single family rental housing, for example. Um, you know, there's just been these ongoing phases and that the the government intervention has been very slow and very band-aid oriented. And what needs to happen is something more similar to what Germany does, which is every year they the government is like, we are responsible for making sure that everybody has housing. And they every year take an assessment and do something about it. So they have to build 60 units in a certain area of the government, they go and do it immediately. And like Berlin has done, which is they've frozen all rents in the city of Berlin because it's, first off, a lot cheaper. (laughs) But it it goes back to that we all have a right to housing and that this is just, just like milk. And I mean, I think we would argue medication and education. Um, I don't think we have decommodified it in this country, but um, you know, there are just certain things that it's just war profiteering, you know, because if you don't have, I mean, how do we resist it? We just add more and more people to an apartment because we can't just not have it. And then eventually we end up on the street. And this is maybe more an organizer question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, um, in case you have some thoughts. How do we get to scale on the strategy? Like, what do you think we need to do? Everybody needs to do it everywhere. I am, you know, I think that I've, I've, you know, the moms regularly talk about, you know, this is a movement and it's for everybody. It's not just about housing three families. It's about housing all of us and everybody everywhere. You know, they, the, I'm always moved by the, the statement about, you know, bad things don't happen by bad people. They happen when good people do nothing. So everybody every day needs to be doing something. And, um, you know, if you're not doing something, you're part of the problem. Because it's that silence, that like thinking it's just going to get solved some other way, that we can have it all. But the reality is everyone needs to be stepping up. And, you know, I think everybody knows it only takes five people to make change in any community. And so, you know, I think I invite everybody to just step up immediately and do something, whether it's going to your city council and saying we need more affordable housing. Don't let new construction get built without affordable units. Um, Don't let people be on boards that are developers who don't 
aren't doing significant contributions around um, accepting Section 8 vouchers. I mean, there's so many developers who think it's acceptable to not be helping at all and just be making money off of this crisis. So I, I think to that point, what would you say to people who are afraid to get involved? So one of the flashpoints, as we know, is the tanks rolling in from Alameda County Sheriff's Department and uh, that kind of imagery and that reality of what happened to the moms and their kids. And they continue to fight and it's admirable. But, you know, for, for people who are afraid to do a similar strategy because of that reality of, um, of criminalization, of, um, you know, like, heavy police and sheriff's departments coming down on people. Well, I think that, again, speaking up in numbers and people who do have particularly white privilege where it's less likely that you'll get shot, um, that you need to stand up and be be present. And that's why I think it's really important that, you know, we need to collaborate. And yes, I think that, um, you know, the black community particularly uh, in at least in Oakland, you know there is you know a particular um, you know, vulnerability um, in terms of standing up to the police, standing up to sheriffs, you know. And I think it's been you know one of the the, empa- the empowering aspects and the important aspects about Moms for Housing is who the leadership was, who was leading the movement. Um, but I think it was also important the support they got um, surge. Um, which is stand up um, against racism, you know, played a really vital uh, role. They provided security 24 hours a day. There was somebody inside monitor, you know, kind of observing, reporting things um, to make sure that there was safety for the moms. And so I think that it's, it is about doing it collaboratively, being conscious of who can lead things and who can, who needs to provide support. Um, But everybody is needed. And I think that that's, you know, really important. And I think it's also really, I think, worth commenting on that people who are most afraid are the ones who probably are least at risk. Because we, I mean, as a, as a white person, I don't worry about being pulled over by a cop and shot. And, you know, when this was all happening, I was worried because I was worried of who was in the house and who they perceived was going to be in the house. But that's only because in my everyday, I don't have to worry where so many, you know, people of color, like I have to be afraid all the time. So being afraid and resisting is no different than being afraid and one's every day. And so I think if you're like, oh, I don't want to do this because I'm afraid, I think you need to check your privilege because you have the luxury to say, to distinguish between your everyday moment and taking action. And um, you need to activate that privilege to support and make change. And, you know, I think the other thing is this was a very well-organized campaign and that is important. This didn't just happen randomly. It's, you know, it reminds me of um, Rosa Parks was a, a deep organizer. You know, she was not just random person on a bus. And so I say that because people need to take organizing seriously and do the work. And when we do it, we win. Amazing to see so many community folks come out and support and take on support roles. Uh, 
why do you, and maybe it's because of that deep organizing work, but also just kind of elaborating on why do you think there was such an overwhelming community response? I think because things are, again, I'll go back to things are bad enough. Um, I think that everybody knows someone who is extremely housing burdened or at risk of homelessness or homeless. You know, we all know we can't hire people because nobody can afford to live here. We can't, our teachers keep leaving. Our, we don't, doctors don't even want to come to California anymore. Um, I mean, it's like affecting every part of our society. So it, there was nobody that felt like that's somebody else's problem anymore, which is sad, right? But it's that it takes that. Um, I think there's that. I also think it's layers and layers and layers of people organizing and some of the best organizers I know really being involved. And they know what they're doing and they let it. And they were great leaders and there was lots of infrastructure. So, I mean, folks who had developed relationships in Occupy had developed relationships in other kinds of equity and racial justice work. Um, but, you know, it, it really was, it took a lot of work. People were working 24-7. And, um, but it really came out of just, you know, so many people part of the organizing you know, members from from ACE who just had become homeless. You know, that was new. Yes, at risk of, of homelessness, yes. You know, that we had to help campaign so people stayed in their units. You know, ACE has been doing that for generations. Or, you know, and it is ACORN before that. But that members were now homeless, that staff were now homeless. Like, it, it just required extraordinary action because it was extraordinary circumstances. I know I said last question, but just kidding. Last, last question. Uh, what's next? Well, um, the moms have a whole slew of legislation um, that they are working on and ACE is working on. Um, and we're really going to push because I think that it did create a lot of space for solutions, the, the, the real ones, instead of just the Band-Aid ones. So that's what's happening next. And people need to continue to be involved and, and organize. Get out there and organize. Every day, I don't play When I gotta record what I gotta say It ain't for reward or cash money I'm a caterpillar with my leg to say, say. Uh, Just wait and see Butterfly so fly, never take a seat From the past to the present and the place to be So why you looking all strange at me? So what's your part? My part is I'ma take the lead Vocals till my throat bleeds Bring this music so that you believe What's your part? My part is to pass this to generations So that it can stay alive I'm talking freedom and creation What's your part? My part is I'ma take Take the lead, vocals till my throat bleeds. Bring this music so that you believe. What's your part? My part is to pass this to generations so that it can stay alive. I'm talking freedom and creation. Thanks again to Amy for that great interview with Leon Simon Weinsberg. Um, yeah, man, we got to keep talking about renter power. We're talking about building power across the state. And one of the um, events that I was able to go to more really, really recently was the launch of the Sonoma County Tenants Union. Can you believe that Sonoma County has a tenants union now, Eileen? I love that. It's been a dream. You know, my family's up there. It's been <laughs> a are. dream for them to have. And I love, I love yeah. hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully your family could get in touch with this group. But um, it was a great event. Uh, North Bay Organizing Project uh, was the lead convener of the Renter Power Assembly in Santa Rosa that was held there a couple weeks ago. Um, great event. There was at least over 100 tenants there. Wow. Right? 
wow. on a Saturday. Yeah. So it was really cool. Um, yeah, and there was definitely a lot of excitement about mm-hmm. launching the tennis union there um, that was going to represent Sonoma County. And just like a lot of other parts of uh, California and, and areas that are not so close to urban cities, um, you know, they're just looking to try to pull the resources together mm-hmm. and figure out how they could solve some of those issues that they have up there, which a lot of them, a lot of the tenants I spoke to are, are suffering, um, you know, with really bad habitability issues and, and, um, landlords were very, uh, being abusive. So it was great to be in, in, in the presence of so many folks there in, in, um, in Santa Rosa, shout out to Chad Bola and Beatriz Camacho for North Bay organizing project for, for doing an outstanding job of, um, and of course they had tons of help and support with other folks there, um, that were part of that, but, um, just special shout out and recognition to Chad and, and Beatriz for, you know, being able to juggle this great, you know, sometimes putting these things together very hard. It's really hard. Thank you for your work. We see you. <laughs> yeah, we definitely see you. We definitely see you. And and just from the experience of, you know, helping with California Rental Power and even our regional Northern, uh, Northern California um, Tenant Power Assembly that we had, um, it takes a lot of work. So for them to pull it off, um, you know, I tip my hat off to them. I, you know, much props to, uh, for them to put it together, but also bigger props to the tenants who's, who decided to step up to form a tenants union mm-hmm. to say, Hey, you know what, we're going to organize, we're going to solve our own problems. And, you know, we, they have the support of a great organization like North Bay organizing projects. So, uh, big ups to them. Awesome. If folks want to find out more about the Sonoma Tenants Union, do we, do they have a web presence? How do, how do folks get in That's touch with them? That's a great question. I don't know that, Eileen. <laughs> that is a great question. Um, but I will defer, say, check out North Bay Organizing Project. Awesome. They are helping um, with that tenants union there. They're, they're very um, brand new. So North Bay Organizing Project would probably be the organization I would reach out to to get in touch with the Sonoma County um, uh, tenants union there. Um, but that's a great question. <laughs> that's great. I'm glad to hear folks are doing this. I know, you know, thinking of my own family and stuff, we've yeah. had folks be evacuated the last two years because right. of the fires and we're right. really seeing a loss of, uh, loss of a lot of places where folks, mm-hmm. folks have been living and, and living affordably, living with dignity and stability. And we're seeing that loss so oh, yeah. much throughout the community. So I'm definitely, I'm glad that folks are organized and we've got mm-hmm. a place to turn. Yeah, and it's much needed, especially in like I said, you know, in areas like Santa Rosa um, that were hit by those huge fires mm-hmm. a, a couple of years ago, yeah. um, and in situations in cities and areas like that. And I will make a comparison to like Chico, who also had their uh, huge fire there with the campfire. Um, it causes a lot of displacement, and that causes a lot of opportunity for bad landlords to be abusive and, you know, get away with some of the things that they're doing. So, um, so tenant unions are very much needed to protect, uh, our families, our communities and stuff like that. So folks who are impacted by the housing crisis, we have faces, we have story and we have inherent value to this community. So today is our first general meeting for the Sonoma County Tenants Union. And we decided that we wanted to have a renters assembly alongside of that because we don't have a strong base of organized renters here in Sonoma County yet. And so we recognize that the, the need for it, the education piece. So the why we organize, the how to and why form associations. So that's the reason. And the, the deeper reason is to build our base of, of renter organizers and renter leaders here in the county. When I use terms like deep ecology, logically, I'm referring to the link between the urge biology and the reality 
we've been working on the body, the the bylaws, the body, the structure of the tenants' union for a while now, and we feel that it's a time to go public and start getting the power that we need to make the the union do its job, and that is the membership which we're hoping to get here to build. So we're hoping that we have renters that are committed to um, show up for the struggle, that are that see clearly that they're not alone, and that when we get together and make one fist, that we have more power, and that um, and that they also that they see the broader context that it, that this BS about um, it's our own fault if we if we can't afford a house we haven't worked hard enough that they, that that myth gets broken. And I think when that myth gets broken through the education piece and through us uniting, then people are going to feel a lot more empowered. And so our hope is that we build up a strong, strong tenant union here because that's the, that's our only solution to fight back against um, against predatory real estate um, rich folks that are not concerned with people in the streets. The reason I'm still here, the reason I drove three hours to be here with all of you today is because I'm invested in creating a beloved community. Just this past month, on January 25th, we had our annual Tenant Lawyer Network, or the TLN Conference. Tenants Together has been doing these conferences annually every January, alternating each year between Northern and Southern California. And this year, we were hosted by the UCLA School of Law in the Westwood neighborhood of Los Angeles. Uh, Amy was uh, there, present. She had her hands tied up helping coordinate the the event itself and was our lead staff um, on this. So, Amy, you want to give us a report back on how that went? Thanks, Eduardo. Yeah, it was really exciting. And I want to mention a little bit more about the Tenant Lawyer Network at Tenants Together. And I think a little known fact about Tenants Together, even though we are an organizing and advocacy organization, We are also an organization that works in partnership with tenant attorneys all over the state. And the Tenant Lawyer Network was formed uh, eight years ago, approximately, to support those tenant attorneys in the work that they do. It's a pretty hard job, and we appreciate them so much, uh, and also is a way that they are more connected to the organizing work uh, and are a special group of tenant attorneys around the state who want to support organizing and advocacy and want to work more in partnership. Uh, And that's the Tenant Lawyer Network. And so this was our eighth year doing the conference. Yay! We usually do it end of January um, so people can get their MCLE credits in. I'm not a lawyer. I don't remember what that acronym means, but it's important. Continuing education credits and um, and really good time to, to get those in with a full day with a conference. And yeah, and so also more than half are... Um, I. I 
I'm sorry, actually a little under half are member organizations, our legal services groups uh, supporting the movement for tenants' rights. So uh, a number of those organizations and staff there were involved in planning the Tenant Lawyer Network Conference. And so I just want to give those folks a shout out right now. because Yeah, because they were really important uh, and helped to coordinate the panels for the day and helped to do outreach so that folks attended. At the end of the day, we got over 100 uh, attorneys and wow. law students. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. From, from around the state. Um coming to the conference. So yeah, awesome. thanks thanks to them. Their names are uh, Claudia Medina, uh, now at the law office of Claudia Medina, uh, Deepika Sharma, uh, now at UCLA Diversity and Affirmative Action EEO Compliance Office, uh, Lydia Nicholson, uh, who is a UCLA law student and uh, leading up, helping to lead up the Tenant Law Student Association, which special shout out to that student association and Lydia and the other students at UCLA Law who volunteered at registration in the morning, um, who outreached to their peers to get more students at the conference, as I think it's especially important as there's more of these right to counsel laws and more move for funding for tenant attorneys around the state, uh, that we are actually uh, doing more to educate students and support students in taking on that field. So that is a unique thing. I hear there's also a student association at Hastings Law. So let's get more of those going. Sorry, I was more. working through my list. No, that's a lot. That's great. <laughs> but I want to make sure to mention that. Um, also, Madeline Howard at Western Center on Law and Poverty. Uh, Madeline is a badass. We appreciate her so much. Uh Navni Gruwal with Disability Rights California, and Shirley Gibson at Legal Aid Society of San Mateo County, uh, and a special special sad face um, for Shirley, who, and a couple other folks whose plane couldn't leave from SFO that morning, and they couldn't actually make it to the conference they helped plan. <laughs> so, wow. um, but but Shirley did so much um, to help help put the thing together. So. Yeah, that's that's everyone who is involved. Um, I could talk a little bit about what happened that please, day. Please, please keep keep going. Amy. Okay, <laughs> the floor is yours. <laughs> All right. Uh, so so we kicked it off with a report back from California Renner Power, which if folks uh, remember, the statewide happened last October. Yep. Um, feels like a lifetime ago, mm-hmm. but not too long ago. Nope. In Inglewood. In Inglewood. I got it right this time. <laughs> and. We uh, did a report back. We thought that was important because it was an assembly mainly intended by organizers and tenants and um, for uh, attorneys and attendants to know if they hadn't already heard about the, the policy priorities and goals of folks who attended that, that statewide assembly, um, given that you know we're, we're organizing the Tenant Lawyer Network and we're doing the work in the way that we believe organizing leads and tenants leave and other folks are there to support. So that's why we kicked off the day with a report back from Renner Power and um, people were really responsive to that. Uh, And then we dug in um, to a bunch of nerdy things like um, talking 
about the new state bills, especially 1482, the statewide rent cap, uh, new case law, and then uh, had lunch. And then the afternoon uh, talked about unlawful detainer defense, which is eviction defense, uh, doing affirmative litigation uh, as part of eviction defense, and also focusing on protected uh, classes as a way to keep people in their homes. Uh, protected classes just means like if folks have uh, a disability um, or it, there's a big long list of like reasons and ways you can't discriminate against people in California. There's federal laws, there's California laws, uh, and attorneys use those um, to to help people stay in their homes. Uh, so yeah, that was the, the summary of the day. And folks learned a lot, were really responsive. Folks who'd been doing unlawful detainer defense uh, said to us, like, I learned something new today. <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's the whole purpose, right? Hopefully that yeah. folks walked away with another piece of... Um, you know, to take back into the movement. So. Yeah. And it continues to be really special because there's a mm-hmm. lot of, there's a lot of housing conferences, uh, but there's, there's a lot to know around right. uh, tenant law and there's not a lot of, there continues to be not a lot of resources to uh, help attorneys as well. People may not be aware that when you go to law school, you don't learn a lot about tenant landlord law. Right, right. You maybe have one property rights class and right. maybe one or two days where they talk about um, contract law and tenants rights. <laughs> and it's actually a lot to know. Um, and so people really appreciate having this space to really dig in. Nice. So we're looking at another one next year. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. This time, probably Northern California, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. They usually nice. alternate. Um, we've been hosted by um, uh, Berkeley in the past. I was going to say Bolt, and I guess their name changed. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just Berkeley Law, right? It's Berkeley yeah, Law now. it makes more sense. Yeah. Everyone understands it better. Um, good, it. good branding change. That's so, it. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for sharing that. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I think that's it. <laughs> 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 All right. So if if there's a tenant lawyer out there listening, definitely reach out to us maybe to join the TLN. Yeah, you can. I mean, we're we're um my my preference of a thing to mention yeah. would be that we're currently hiring for yeah. uh counseling and volunteer coordinator. <laughs> <laughs> Let's lift that up really quick. Yeah, yeah basically um uh, I have been for the last couple of weeks um Doing, doing the job I started at at Tenants Together, right, managing right. the hotline and the right. volunteers, which I love at all of those people. But it would be amazing if we found a super cool person who wanted to come on board mm-hmm. and do that work of uh, the counseling and volunteer coordination. It is a really fulfilling job because there's an amazing crew of, at this point, over 40 volunteers who are doing the counseling, know what they're doing, uh, need some extra support, and a bunch of folks around the state who are interested in starting their own counseling programs. Uh, So it has a lot of impact because we're both doing some of that work ourselves in the office and also uh, replicating a model of peer counseling and counseling connected to organizing all over the state. Uh, And so come work with us. Come work with me. Where can someone apply? 
Hmm. You can just go online. Yeah, you can. Um, you can go to. We have a posting on idealist.org. Uh, we also have a posting on our website, tenantstogether.org. If you go to join us at mm-hmm. the very top, uh, the deadline is the end of the month to 28th, apply. Right? Yes, twenty eighth. Twenty eighth. So. It may say something else on the website right now. Just ignore that. (laughs) (laughs) Deadline is the 28th. All right. Well, that concludes another episode of the Rent of Power Hour by Tennis Together. Don't forget to check back next month. Hopefully, we'll have another episode. We usually uh, upload them on SoundCloud. But Eileen, what other ways can you find us? You can also find us on our website, tenantstogether.org. There's a lot of great stuff. Um, If you were interested in some of the things we covered today, We definitely link to some of the stories we've covered so you can learn more. You can also find out what's happening and who's organizing in your community. If you are a tenant in California with a question about your rights, um, you go to our website, tenantstogether.org. You can check out our resources tab to search for local resources in your area or find out about contacting our hotline, which is 888-495-8020. Again, 888-495-8020 is the Tenants Together statewide hotline. I like that you repeated it. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> you want people to have to like rewind yeah. and write it down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and while you're there, remember Tenants Together is a really grassroots org. We're supported by our members, not big banks, not the realtor lobby. We wouldn't take their money if they tried to give it to us. So click that donate button and support our work. Um, We're really supported by our folks at 10, 15 bucks. You shoot us here and there. Makes a huge difference in our work. 20, 30, 50. You know, we'll take 100. Just as long as it's not (laughs) corporate, we don't, you know, we don't take that money. We want good money. Yeah, no money that undermines tenants. Right, exactly. (laughs) That doesn't displace tenants. Yeah. And if you're listening to us and you're hoping to get some uh, support regarding some of the organizing work that you're doing there in your area around housing justice and you're in Northern California, feel free to reach out to me, Eduardo, at TenantsTogether.org. Or if you're in uh, Southern California, you can reach out to my counterpart, Jorge, uh, and his email is Jorge at TenantsTogether.org. You've been listening to the Rent of Power Hour. Don't forget to check us out next month. (laughs) 